I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody. We're here to continue our study of the Shema prayer, a prayer that is central to the Jewish people. It's our uh, mission statement, if you like. It's our declaration of dependence on Hashem and uh, what lies at the heart of the Jewish people, the belief in one God and the mission that we have to spread that belief to the world and live it, not just believe it, but actually live it through the teachings of the Torah, through the mitzvahs of the Torah. We're going to talk more about that as we get into the Shema. I mentioned a prayer just to thank Hashem, just a a short, I'll just do part of it. Thank you, Hashem, King of Kings and Master of the World. Thank you for the infinite times that you helped me, supported me, rescued me, encouraged me, cured me, guarded over me, and made me happy. Thank you for always being with me. Thank you for giving me the strength to observe your commandments, to do good deeds and pray. Thank you for all the times you helped me, and I didn't know how to say thank you. Thank you for all the loving kindnesses you do for me each and every moment, every breath I breathe. Thank you, Hashem, for all the things that I do have, and thank you, Hashem, even for the things that I don't have. Okay, the prayer goes on, but I'm going to stop there, and we can say more of it in our next class. But just important you know, to realize that gratitude and giving thanks to Hashem is it really one of the cornerstones or the main cornerstone of Jewish, the Jewish foundation. It's the the foundation stone of all of Judaism. Being grateful every moment that we're able to be in this world to bring Kiddush Hashem, and to bring Hashem's godliness into the world through our actions and through being his people and his eldest, if you like, the ones that are supposed to be an example to the rest of the world. Okay, so just a quick review from last week. We started with the Shema, the first sentence in the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, which is translated, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is our mission statement. As we said, we cover our eyes. We said because this statement um, expresses the idea of Hashem and Elokeinu, that there's two ways that God interacts with the world. One is through din and judgment and justice, and one is through rachamim. And as human beings, it's very difficult for us to understand how these two interact And, you know, the reasons, obviously, for why Hashem does or allows the world to, you know, people to do whatever it is that they do in this world that is negative or, in general, catastrophes and tragedies. So we cover our eyes as if to say we cannot understand this while we're in a physical body, while we're in the physical world. The, this sentence, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and the next one that I'm going to talk about that we say quietly, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Le'olam Va'ed, the rabbis teach that if nothing else, it's very important to have Kavana for these two lines. You know, when th- those of you who studied Shimona Esrei with me, we said that about the first paragraph in Shema in Shimona Esrei that once upon a time they expected us to have Kavana all the way through but as history went on and we become smaller and smaller in terms of our ability to pray and to pray with Kavana the rabbis expect I mean the 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 way to be mekabal this mitzvah is to at least have Kavana for the first line of Shema Yisrael and for the Baruch Shem Kavod and, you know, we said that as a person saying Shema Yisrael, they should be thinking about the idea of 
Ol Malchus Shamayim, the letters of the word Shema backwards spell Ol Malchus Shamayim, Ayin Mem Shin. And the idea is that we're saying to Hashem that we are taking on this responsibility to declare you as one, to live our lives in consonance with your will as your servants. And this is an all, this is a yoke that we willingly take upon us because just as a yoke directs an animal and allows him to be as productive as possible and go in the right direction, this is an all, a yoke that we willingly take on because that's what we're here in this world for. That's our mission. So that's one of the things we should be thinking about. Also, when we say the word echad, we think Hashem is one. He's not two. Like, you know, other religions that sort of split God apart or, you know, many, many deities in certain religions, the God of this, the God of that. God is one. He's unique. And we're supposed to draw out, actually, the, the letter Dalit at the end, echad. But it's funny, my husband just mentioned that um, it's very hard to draw that letter out, right? Because I teach reading, I would tell the kids, that's a stop sound, right? You can't really draw it out like, hmm. So he was saying that just like the letter ayin and the letter aleph used to have a distinction between them, that the ayin was a very guttural sound. And the, the Yemenites actually still say ayin like that. But the rest of us have lost that so too the Dalit was pronounced differently. And it was in a way that you could actually continue the sound. But we can't do that anymore, but we're still supposed to try and say that Echad. And in general, if you look at your art scroll sitter, if you have one, you'll see that there's lines between the words, horizontal lines. And this is because, you know, the idea of saying each word clearly and not slurring the words together with the one next to it is also a very important part of saying the Shema properly. So here we're getting into the mechanics a little bit of the Shema and how to say it. And um, again, uh, it's a very important central prayer. So again, the rabbis are urging us to say it with kavana, with intention, even if we can only sustain it for the first two lines. And slowly and carefully with the proper enunciation. And so that's what we try to do. So to continue, well, just again, the idea of listening. We said that Judaism is a religion of listening. You know, we have an expression in the Western world, seeing is believing. But in Judaism, we say, you know, seeing can result in creating idols that you need to see in order to worship. And this is something, obviously, that in Judaism, we have an invisible God, a God that we cannot see, but we have to believe that we can hear him and that he hears us, that we can have an intimate relationship with God. This is from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs on the spirituality of listening. As our parent, our partner, our sovereign, the one who loves us and whom we love. We cannot demonstrate God scientifically. We cannot prove God logically. These are Greek, not Jewish modes of thought. He goes on to say that listening lies at the very heart of relationship. It means that we're open to the other, that we respect him or her, that their perceptions and feelings matter to us, that we give them permission to be honest, even if this makes us vulnerable in so doing. A good parent, Rabbi Sachs says, listens to their child. A good employer listens to his or her workers. A good company listens to its customers or clients. A good listener listens to those he or she leads. Listening does not mean agreeing, but it does mean caring. In Judaism, we believe that our relationship with God is an ongoing tutorial in our relationships with other people. How can we expect God to listen up to us if we fail to listen to our spouse, our children, or those affected by our work? And how can we expect to encounter God if we have not learned to listen? On Mount Horeb, Hashem taught Eliyahu that it was not in the whirlwind, the earthquake, or the fire, but in the cold mamadaka, the still small voice that I define as a voice you can only hear if you are listening. 
Listening is the prelude to love. Whether between us or God, or us and other people. So this idea of listening, which, you know, takes a lot of practice and it demands a certain expertise is what God is telling us we need to do in order to be able to hear him and hear his word. And that's the very first word, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Okay, so we said last week that one of the origins of these first two lines in the Shema takes place when Yaakov's on his deathbed and his sons are gathered around him. And he wants to um, let them know about the future of the Jewish people and when Mashiach is going to come, when suddenly his Ruach HaKodesh is taken away from him. And he worries at that moment that perhaps there's a flaw in one of his sons, somebody who doesn't deserve to have this information given to them. And his sons reassure him by saying the words, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Listen, our father Yisrael, right? Jacob, another name for Yisrael. Hashem is our God and Hashem is one. In other words, we learn the lesson we know and we're going to pass this on and we will survive Jewish history with these words on our lips. And, mo- and we're told that uh, Yaakov then responds, Baruch Shem Kavod Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom for all eternity. So this is a very interesting line that we know that we say quietly. Now, why do we say this quietly? So there's a number of reasons. It says that, first of all, this verse is not found in the Torah. The Talmud tells us that Jacob said this verse, but Moshe never did. And so it's a question whether we should say it at all. And we kind of compromise by saying it in a whisper. Now, a Midrash tells us why. Basically, Moshe did hear this verse spoken, but he heard it when he was up on Har Sinai. And he heard the angels singing this. Baruch Shem Kavod Olam Va'ed. And Moshe wanted to come down and tell the Jewish people about this verse, but he was afraid that the angels would accuse him of being a thief and taking something very lofty from up there and bringing it down into a world that, you know, was not ready, I guess, or whatever for these words that only angels say with their very clear view of God. So it, again, we have a certain compromise here that during the year we say it quietly so as not to, so to speak, insult the angels. But once a year on Yom Kippur, we say it loudly. Because as we know, Yom Kippur were likened to angels, right? Women, men wear a white kittle. There's a custom to wear white. The idea of the fact that we don't indulge in physical um, needs on that day is because we're trying to imitate the spirituality of the angels who don't need physical food and drink, etc. On that day, we're able to say the Rushing Kavod loudly. Okay, so that's just uh, a little bit on that so that you understand the source. Okay, so we're going to continue. And um, I just wanted to let you know that I'm using a lot of wonderful books. One book that I'm really enjoying is The Shema by Norman Lamb. It's uh, quite intellectually heavy, but uh, and I'd love to share all of it with you, but it's and another one is Lisa Aiken, The Hidden Beauty of the Shema. And of course, Rabbi Schwab's book uh, on prayer and a few other sources, but just so you know. Okay, so each of the three paragraphs of the Shema, which we're going to look at, they each have a different theme. And the first one, the theme is love, loving Hashem, and again, committing ourselves to the idea of being his servants. So it begins, and you should love the Lord, your God, with all your heart. Okay, so we're just going to look at the idea, first of all, of loving Hashem. 
How is it that God can command us to love Hashem? Loving Hashem is one of the 613 mitzvot. And this prayer, the Shema, is telling us it's not enough to know that there's a God. It's not enough to believe that there's a God. But you have to develop a relationship with him. There has to be a love relationship that's going on. Just like there's 248 positive mitzvot we said last week, there's 248 words in the prayer of the Shema. And the, the 248 mitzvot of positivity always express the idea of love as, composed, as, as opposed to the 365 negative mitzvot, which always connote the idea of restraint or fear. Okay? We're going to understand that we need both and that fear actually is important even in the love relationship. Okay, um, so loving Hashem, as I said, is one of the six constant mitzvot. But the question is, how can we be commanded to love? Isn't love an emotion? Isn't love something that, we're, that you know, comes and goes? The idea is, the, the, the idea is, is that if God commands us to do anything, including being in control of our emotions or developing our emotions in a certain way, it means that it's possible. We have to arouse this emotion, this emotion that may be only in the koach, in potential, but we have to make it real. We have to make it actual. And I want to read to you from the words of the Rambam. The Rambam in the Mishnah Torah actually has a chapter in his Yad HaChazaka, called the book of love and he begins it with this idea of how is it that a human being is able to love Hashem the concept of loving Hashem is the soul's longing for the creator yearning to cling to his supreme radiance the soul which is spiritual is inclined toward that which is similar to it when the soul senses something spiritual, it focuses all its thoughts towards it, clinging and yearning for it. Although we see that love of Hashem is innate in the soul of man, we know that it's not as easily acquired as the love for physical things. This is because a person experiences physical pleasures automatically. Love of Hashem, unlike physical pleasures, is not easy to feel. Since the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination confuses man and submerges him in the mundane matters of this world. Were a person to sense the spiritual sweetness of closeness to Hashem, love for Hashem would immediately be born in him, since this is the natural state of the soul. So every single soul, and especially and specifically the Jewish soul that we're talking about, longs to have this connection and yearning to Hashem, but there are impediments, there are obstacles that prevent the soul from feeling this connection in this world in the way that it wants to. So the goal of life is to remove the barriers, and these barriers conceal this love, and very often the barriers are caused by too much material indulgence, even permissible ones. And, you know, we, we've talked about this in many classes. We're living in a, in a time period in a generation where, you know, this is probably one of the greatest challenges of our time is the fact that so much is available and we've never been so fortunate materially and yet, you know, like, you know, we like to say, like, I think my daughter was complaining about which nail polish color she should wear. And, you know, we're laughing, saying first world problems. <laughs> right? We all know that we're getting smaller and smaller from the generations before us and pettier and pettier in certain ways. And we have to be careful. Again, we spoke in the Wednesday class about water and pleasures how much is too much, how little is too little, and finding that proper balance that's needed for the main purpose of our lives, which is avodas Hashem, being a good servant to Hashem, and clinging to Him. 
So we might think that these feelings of loving Hashem are not in our control, but cognitive behavior teaches us that what you think affects your feelings. So if you think thoughts of gratitude to Hashem for every little blessing in your life, this will be then you will be aroused to love him. Another idea is from Rav Dessler, who asked the question, does love lead to giving or does giving lead to love? So the normal you know, way that we would answer this question logically is that the more I love a person, the more I want to give to them. But actually, Rav Dessler explains that the truth is it's the opposite, that the more you give to someone, the more you love them. And the actual Aramaic word in the word ahava, have, actually means give. So embedded in the word love is the idea that there cannot be love unless there is giving. And when you give to somebody, you know, even a stranger, I always say you're standing at the bus stop, hopefully not in this weather, and uh, somebody asks you, you know, which bus goes to a certain destination? Well, you might have been standing there ignoring each other or not talking to each other, but once there's a communication and you're being asked to give information, whatever it is, there's a certain closeness now that's created because Rav Dessler is saying that giving leads to love. And so the idea is, is that obviously God doesn't need anything from us, but the more we commit to giving to him, so to speak, by learning his Torah by doing the mitzvahs that he wants us to do. And by the way, the word mitzvah also has in the center of it, the word sav, which means to connect. That the mitzvahs are the vehicles for us to be able to connect to Hashem, to give to Hashem. And that giving, that connection, that relationship that we have with these ropes, so to speak, 613 ropes that attach us our souls to that which is spiritual, that which even though we do the mitzvahs with our bodies in this world, we're flexing our spiritual muscles. We're developing that spiritual side of ourselves. This is a way that we can love Hashem more. So the more money, for example, you spend on an esrog on sukkahs, the more love you will feel. The more you prepare for a mitzvah, the more a mitzvah is important in your eyes and precious, this builds up a, a certain love that uh, we're trying to achieve with Hashem. The hafta is telling us not to perform Hashem's mitzvahs out of rote, out of habit, not to be a good robot, as Rav Noah Weinberg used to say, and not even out of fear Although primarily, there's nothing wrong with using fear as a motivator to begin one's practice of Yiddishkeit. Fear doesn't work so well in today's world and the level that we're on spiritually, but there is an idea of three levels of fear that actually melt into love. So the first level of fear, just to um, review, for those of you who haven't heard this in other classes, it's called Yiras Ha'onesh. We do something because we're afraid of the punishment. Okay, so for example, somebody who really understands that God is going to judge us and has integrated that when we get to the next world, that every single thing we said and did and thought and is going to be brought to court and nobody's going to escape without a very detailed uh, hearing. And there's going to be prosecutor and defense attorney. And a person really imagines that. And that is enough for them to say, Hashem, I'm going to do what you tell me to do because I'm afraid of the punishment. Mommy, I'll do it. Daddy, I'll do it because I don't want to be sent to my room. I don't want the consequences. I don't want you to take the car away from me. I'll do it because of the fear of punishment. Let's face it, that motivates children. And it motivates many of us 
at the stages of life where we need it. But this is one of the ways that we have to serve Hashem with this fear, with this understanding that God is the God of judgment and he will judge us. Okay, but the next level is something called Yiras Haromamus, the fear that comes from the awesomeness of understanding who God is, right? If a person like the Rambam says would just sit and contemplate the universe and everything in it and learn science and knowledge of the world and the workings of the inner body and how when one thing goes wrong, how interrelated everything is in the body, let alone in the entire world, right? How the sun is exactly the right distance away from the earth. If it was just a little bit closer, we'd all burn up. If it was a little bit further away, the earth would freeze. When a person contemplates the wonders and the majesty and the power of Hashem, that brings him to a Yiras Haromamus, a catch my breath, you know, standing, sitting on a beach with the stars above me in the nighttime and say, look how puny I am. The Rambam says it beautifully. I'd love to read you everything I've read, but I don't want to bore you with reading. But it says a whole passage about, you know, how puny I am, how incredible Hashem is. This is Yiras Haromamus. And then we have the highest level, which is really where Ahava, which is considered a higher level than Yira, right? But you have to pass through the Yira in order to get to true Ahava. You can't skip Yira and go straight to, I love God. I'm not afraid. I love God. God loves me. You know, hallelujah. You know, so-and-so loves me, right? I love him. There has to be that Yira for it to be real. And what's that higher form of Yira? Yira is, I love you so much. I'm so clear about all that you do for me and all the kindnesses that you do for me and how every moment of my life is dependent on you and how much you love me. By the way, the, 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 I have to mention that before we even begin the Shema, we have a paragraph called Ahava Rabba. And in this paragraph, it talks about God's incredible love for us, right? With an abundant love, have you loved us, Hashem, our God? With exceedingly great pity, have you pitied us, right? You are merciful and you love us and your words of Torah, you teach us with love. And it ends by saying, you know, blessed are you, Hashem, who chooses his people, Israel, with love. So before we even begin the Shema, we are very, very clear and confident about the fact that God loves us more than any parent could love their child, more than any husband could love their wife. He forgives us. He wants us to succeed. And he loves us more powerfully than anything we could ever imagine. And only then do we go into the Shema and talk about how much we love him back. Because you love somebody back when they love you. You can't help yourself. And if you realize the enormity of their love and all that they do for you and how much they're concerned with you and how they're thinking of you all the time, right? My picture is on God's fridge, right? then you can feel this surety and confidence of loving back. And that was actually one of the great sins of the Jewish people in the Midbar, right? The, the sin of the spies. They said, God doesn't love us. Is God with us or not, right? God doesn't love us. And when a person doesn't feel that surety and confidence of love, it's very hard to believe that what you're doing matters. So this idea of, Fear that's mingled with love is the fear of, I don't want to do anything that's going to stare this incredible love relationship. Imagine there's somebody in your life who you love so much, who you worship, who you honor, who's your mentor, and you don't want to do anything that would, God forbid, you know, hurt the relationship. Oh, I didn't, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that because this relationship is so important to me. Right, We know that in our own lives, for those of you who are married or those of you who have children, 
We can ruin relationships, relationships where they're based on love and we love so much by not having that restraint button, that fear button of what will my saying this or doing this do to my love relationship? Unfortunately, there's a famous story that Rav Moshe Feinstein used to tell, Oliver Shalom, about, you know, a generation after the Holocaust of Jews who came to Europe, who came from Europe and eked out a very meager living by staying Shomer Shabbos. And many of them will tell stories about how every single week they'd be fired because they would refuse to work on the Saturday on Shabbos and have to go out looking for another job. And many of those fathers would come home at the end of a hard week, knowing that they have no job and have to look for another one. And they'd sit down at the Shabbos table with a big sigh and say, it's so hard to be a Jew. And Ramosha used to say about this, that an entire generation of Jews were destroyed in terms of leaving Yiddishkeit because of these words. Because if that's all you feel about being Jewish, that it's so hard at the same time that you're doing something so incredible by giving up for Hashem, that's the message that your children are going to get, which is why should I bother? Why should I bother? One of my friends who was a great athlete and is still, but she was trained to be a great athlete. Her father was an Olympic athlete had an expression she told me that sometimes you have to give up the good for the great. Sometimes you have to give up what's good for, for greatness. And I think, you know, that's something that we could think about in this. But anyway, Rashi says that if we only serve God out of fear, when a slave serves out of fear, when he's overburdened, he'll leave his master and go off on his own. And so you can't compare somebody who serves out of love to somebody who serves out of fear. Fear is a lower level. But again, the highest level of love is when the two are intermingling and interacting together. Okay, so... We'll talk more about love because, I mean, it's an endless topic. But let's look at, You should love the Lord your God with all your hearts. Now, why do I say hearts? Because the word for your heart should be libcha. Lev is a heart. We have a spelling mistake here in the Shema. It says levavcha. It says two bets, right? Get your red marker out if you're a teacher. No. So Becholavavcha means that it's alluding to the idea that human beings were created with two inclinations, the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Tov. And I want to read to you from Norman Lamb because I think it's so good to understand. And what the Pasuk is telling us is that we have to serve Hashem not only with our good inclination, but also with our evil inclination, that which would seemingly take us away from God, take us away from our spiritual desires and needs of the soul to connect to God. So how do we do this? So first of all, just the idea of what is this Yetzirah? Is it really so bad? So, you know, when God created the world and he finished creating man and he saw everything that he had made, he said it was very good. Behold, it was very good. And the Medrash explains, behold, it was good, refers to the Yetzer Tov. But behold, it was very good, refers to the Yetzer Hara. Okay, so very good is the Yetzer Hara. But how can you say the evil urge is good or very good? astonishing. What does it mean? So one thing is for sure, if not for the evil urge, a man would not build a house or marry a woman or sire children or engage in business. So there's something to do, right? It says that well, there were rabbis 
in the Gemara times that asked Hashem to get rid of the Yetzir Hara. And God said, really, you want me to do that? Yeah, the world would be a better place if we could just get rid of the Yetzir Hara. So it says that God did this for a moment or, you know, a few moments and chickens stopped laying eggs. In other words, we need the Yetzir Hara. Here it's saying without the Yetzirah, men and women would never get together. Men wouldn't pursue business. Everybody would just, whatever, be like a cow, eat grass and lie on the ground and, you know, take it easy, whatever it is. But anyway, this is the interesting part. Our Medrash teaches that our destructive powers not only have the capacity to be redirected for constructive purposes, but indeed are far more potent than the positive ethical and moral dispositions innate within human nature. The good is good, but the evil used for the good is even better. In fact, it is very good. So we have to use what we would call our Yetzir Hara. So what does this mean? How do you love Hashem with your evil inclination? Evil implies your passions and desires, which can lead us astray. So the way we do this, and we've talked about this in our pleasure class, is that in Judaism, we say that there is nothing wrong with pleasure. God made the world with so many pleasures. Because this is Olam Chesed Yibana, Hashem created a world founded on kindness. And one of the ways that he does this is to make all kinds of different fruits with all kinds of different colors instead of just one. And there's so many pleasures in the world. But basically, we are supposed to be using the physical pleasures as a means towards an end, not as an end in themselves, not as literally a dead end. But rather, we're supposed to take all of the material, all of the gashmias, as we say, from the word geshem, right? We only have materialism if it rains with... Things only grow with the rain. Um, only if we use it to grow ourselves, right? So when we sit down to a beautiful Shabbos meal and we make Kiddush on the wine and Hamotzi on the bread and we eat delicious foods, this is in a sense to give the body what it needs, give it the pleasure that it needs in order that the soul can be free of the body's nudges and botherings and enjoy Hashem and reach for Hashem. And then the food and everything else becomes spiritual. It becomes elevated. It's infused with godliness. And so whatever it is, Bad character traits, right? Every character trait that can be negative can be channeled and turned towards positivity, right? Um, anger because of injustice. I think it was uh, is a famous line, or maybe Rev. Noah Weinberg said it, give me 10 angry men and I'll change the world, right? The idea that you can channel that passion of anger at other people, at anger at people's mistakes, towards a passion towards changing yourself and changing the world, okay? We all know there's many examples in the Torah of David HaMelech, for example, was born under the sign of red. He was red. He was born under Mars. So, you know, the idea is a person can either use that redness, which is a propensity to violence, to be to becoming a murderer or to becoming a butcher, a kosher butcher, right? You like the sight of blood. You like to get in there with a knife. Do it with the meat. Don't do it with other people. So the idea is, is that whatever it is that seems or could be possibly negative, you can turn it towards something positive. So when we talk about that, you should love Hashem with all your heart. We're saying that your heart shouldn't be divided. I have a cute story that I heard years ago about a friend of mine whose husband was putting their son to bed one night. He must have been about, I don't know, maybe five or six years old. And he'd been going to the shul program at the village shul. 
where they've been teaching him about the Shema, I guess, on a kid's level. Anyway, this kid was a really great hockey player already in his youth, in his childhood. And his father was a big hockey fan. So while he's putting his son to bed, his son, his little son, out of the mouths of babes, right? He says to his father, you know, dad, there are things in life that are more important than hockey. <laughs> and, you know, his father says, yeah, I know that. I know there's things that are more important than hockey. He goes like, you know, it's important to, uh, to do well in school and, you know, to do your best in school and, you know, be good when you're there. And the kid stops and thinks for a minute. He says, yeah, but there's something more important than that. And, you know, the father's like, okay. Um, he goes, yeah, yeah, of course. There's something more important than that. Like, you know, being nice to your family and getting along with your brothers and sisters and being a good person. And, you know, the kid says, mm-hmm. But there's something more important than that. And now he's totally stumped. He doesn't know where this kid is going. And this is like, you know, a secular Jewish home. This father was not raised with a lot of Yiddishkeit. And he says, okay, what, what is it? What is it? And the kid says, loving Hashem. Loving Hashem is more important than all of those things. So, you know, I think he stopped downstairs and says, what are, where are you sending our kid? What are you teaching him? Whatever, you know. But here out of this little, you know, innocent, pure kid, he was teaching his father a lesson that all of these things may be important. But if they're not for the sake of or channeled towards being the best you can be because Hashem gave you talents, Hashem gave you abilities, and you want to use them in this world to be the best Evan Hashem, the best servant of God that you can be to create a relationship that's at its maximal, then what good is it, basically? There's another beautiful idea that... When we say that you should love Hashem, your God, there is a idea that says what you should be doing is you should be making God beloved to other people. That this is the, this is the role of the Jewish person in, um, in the world. You should love the Lord, your God, means that because of you, the name of heaven will become beloved. Um, cause him to be beloved by humans, just as your father Avraham did. Just as it says, Avraham took Sarai, his wife, and his brother's son Lot, and all the substance they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. The souls they had gotten were the proselytes, those who had converted from paganism to monotheism. Hence, to love God means to act so as to make him beloved of others, to others, be beloved of others. Anyway, it goes on, happy is the man, right? Happy is the teacher who taught this person Torah. Happy is the father who taught him Torah. How beautiful are his manners, how refined are his deeds. People will say, have you seen so-and-so who studied the Torah? So the idea is that we're here to make God's presence more palpable in the world by behaving in a way that makes God beloved. And there's so many stories I could tell about. I remember hearing a story about somebody who was in the olden days, he was using a pay telephone in a public place. And for some reason, every time he put money in or whatever, or when he went there and he was on the phone, the telephone, the telephone kept dispensing all kinds of coins out of it. In other words, he was getting all this free money while he was talking on the phone. Anyway, he called up the phone company. I don't know if there was a number on the phone or whatever. And he explained to them what was happening. And he mentioned on purpose, I want you to know that I'm an Orthodox Jew. And I don't want to take any of this money, you know, illegally. To make a Kiddush Hashem. There's another story, I think, I can't remember the whole thing, but another 
a visibly looking Orthodox Jewish man. I think he was in Buffalo at Tops Friendly Mark. He'd gone specially to buy some kosher products. I don't know, cream of mushroom soup in a can. I don't know, something yucky like that. You know. <laughs> anyway, um, I know we used to stop because my husband went back. Anyway, so whatever, he realized that he hadn't paid for something and he came all the way back. I don't think, I don't know if he had to go over the border again. I don't know. But he told the woman at the cash, I came all the way back, you know, when he had his yarmulke on his head, et cetera, to give back that, that, uh, that item. Another story I heard was from Rabbi Ben-Sion Klatsko, who told a story about he, how he and his wife were at a, a rummage sale in the country one, one day, and the guy was selling a piano, and they'd always wanted a piano, and it was about $250. And they were discussing it. Should they get it? Should they not? Anyway, the, the guy who was running the uh, flea market, you know, they said to him, listen, we're going to walk around a little bit and think about it and we'll let you know. Meanwhile, another woman came and she really wanted the piano. And when they came back, you know, uh, sorry, the guy went to get them and said, you know, I have another customer. Have you made up your mind? So they came back. And in the meantime, they realized that the woman, said she only has $75. Uh, she only brought $75 worth of to the flea market. Um, would it be okay if she just gave that? Meanwhile, Rabbi Clasco said, you know what? I can see you really want it. I'm happy to lend you the rest of the money so that you can buy it here and now. So he gave her the money. And I actually got in touch with him to hear that, to just to make sure the story was clear. And anyway, the, um, the guy who was running the flea market was so impressed and amazed that, you know, he gave her the money to buy the piano that they possibly wanted, that he took out two bottles of scotch from behind his desk and he gave them to him and said, wow. And anyway, he said when he emailed me back that uh, the woman had found him and sent him the money, wired him the money but I don't even know if he expected to be paid, whatever. The point is, is that it was a major Kiddush Hashem that he made. Making God beloved in the eyes of others is what Jewish people are here to do. Unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of bad examples of people who unfortunately make God even more opaque in the world through their behaviors and their actions, but we hopefully will be making Kiddush Hashems. Um, so your actions should encourage others to believe in one God. I always tell this story. I don't know if I should tell it. I remember in Israel when I was 18, I was not religious. I was completely secular, whatever that means. And I remember being on a bus going, I don't know, on the Mediterranean Sea, that road from Tel Aviv to Haifa. And the bus stopped and a guy got in the bus and he had on a tiny little kippah sugah. And in those days, you told at the, at the Tel Aviv bus station, you paid for a ticket depending on how far you were going. So it seemed that, you know, he had paid to get off at a certain destination. But when the time came, he passed that destination and he went a few more stops and then he got off and then he tried to get off. And the bus driver slammed the door on him before he could exit. And he said, you know, your ticket was only for 10 miles earlier you know that's what you paid for and you're getting off now anyway the entire I just remember being in shock because the entire bus was screaming at him and yelling at him the bus driver wouldn't let him off the bus driver drove him another 10 miles past his stop you know to teach him a lesson only in Israel right and everybody said, whoa, the dati, dati, oh, dati, with his keep on his head right so, you know, I learned very quickly that, boy, oh, boy, you got to be careful when you've got that keep on your head, because people are really seeing you as a emissary of God. And, you know, for those Jews who aren't visibly looking Jewish, in a sense, it's really uh, hiding, you know, it's hiding, and it gives you the ability to not keep the Torah and do the mitzvot. Because you can pretend, I mean, as long, as long as people don't know you're Jewish, right? You can lie at the Canada's Wonderland and say your kid's really under three when they're really five. You can do all, right? You can butt into line because nobody knows you're a Jew. 
But if you are visibly wearing that kippah and tzitzis, that shetel and the whole look, you know that you are walking with people looking and watching and wanting, hoping that they're going to say how wonderful are the Jewish people and the God whom they believe in. This is the idea of being visibly Jewish. It keeps you on your toes. It keeps you walking that straight line. And unfortunately, there are people who forget that they are visibly looking that way. I know uh, my mother had an episode with somebody with a keep on who had a business and she was in the store and my sister told me the story. He was extremely rude and nasty. And my mother went over to him and shocked him because she didn't particularly look Jewish. And she said to him, I think you should remove that thing on your head. I think you should get rid of that kippah, you know, because you're a very bad representative for the Jewish people of how they should be behaving. And of course, he was shocked. I don't know if he took it off or not. But um, anyway, just uh, that's what it is. So another way that we can love Hashem is by cleaving to Talmidei Chachamim. The Rambam teaches Maimonides that it's impossible for a physical person to cleave to Hashem. So how do we do this? How does the physical cleave to the spiritual? So one of the ways that we can do this is by cleaving to the people who sit and learn his Torah. Because the greatest way that we, another way that we develop love for Hashem is through learning his Torah. Ladies, when we get together and we learn together, we develop this love for Hashem because of all the wisdom for living and knowledge and clarity and its soul food. And we say in Shemona Esrei every day, Hashivenu avinu Techa, return us to your Torah, our father, right? And father always connotes the love relationship, the father and the child. So, you know, we have to, we love Hashem through learning his Torah and through um, supporting and loving those who learn his Torah. Now, unfortunately, I was talking to my son about this because it's written, it's a klal that people hate Torah scholars, okay? People hate those people who have chosen their life to sit and learn. And we know we have those people today and we've had them throughout history. We've never had so many Jews sitting and learning as we have in this generation at the same time that we've never lived in such a low and decadent and materialistic generation as this one. There always has to be yin and yang. There always has to be zel umad zel. But I was asking my son, why is it? Why do we hate them so much? Why do we get sick of seeing them living in poverty and even our own children if they're then you come on you know how, when are you going to make a living when are you going to do something right or like this article i once read where this woman said don't feel sorry for me that i'm driving my beat up station wagon or van or whatever i'm happy with my life i, I don't need all of you worrying about my you know my state, my van, and you know what a hill Hashem I'm causing because I, I don't look as good as whatever it is. Anyway, I have to tell you this because it's such so incredible. So my son was saying, well, you know, Rabbi Akiva, before he became Rabbi Akiva, hated Talmidei Chachamim to the point that it says whenever he would see one, he would want to bite them. Okay, no, I, I'm, I'm familiar with this Gemara. Maybe you've heard it. So then it says that it goes on to say, why, he said he wanted to bite them like a donkey. So the Gemara asked the question, why like a donkey and not like a dog? So he says that when a donkey would bite, a donkey's jaws are so strong that it can break bones. A dog, however, the bite will only go into the flesh. So it's saying, that the reason that we hate Talmidei Chachamim, like Rabbi Akiva did, who wanted to bite them like a donkey and break their bones, is because we have a certain bone in our body called the lose bone. It's the bone that we're told that is the only bone that doesn't decompose in the grave. 
it's nourished actually by the eating of Malava Malka, but it's also nourished by the studying of Torah. And it's indestructible. And it's by this bone that we will be resurrected one day. Okay. Now, the fact that the Tomide Hachamim are learning Torah day and night means that their loose bone, their spirituality, is very developed as to be indestructible, right? So there's a jealousy that the rest of us have for their Olam Haba, for their Tchiyas Amesim, which is evident, which is clear, right? If they're proper mentioned together with being Torah scholars, that, you know, a dog only bites the flesh, meaning a dog bites them because materially, the flesh is like the material part of us, right? Materially, you know, um, we see that they're not like us. They're willing to go with less. They're willing to have less materially, right? In order to live a life of Torah. So the donkey's jealous of that, Torah wants to bite the inside, not the outside, not the material. They don't have material to be jealous of. But the inside, that bone inside that represents Olam Haba and Ruchnias and Techias Amesim, that's where the jealousy comes from because we all obviously, we all our souls know that that is the greatest treasure, right? There's so many Pesukim, you know, all the gold and silver you could give me, but nothing is like the learning of Torah, right? You read Psalm 119 in Tehillim. It's all about the incredible bliss and ruchnias of the pleasure of learning Torah that one wouldn't trade for all the money in the world. So for most people who don't grow to that level or necessarily want to be there, or maybe they're not capable of it, right? There's still that jealousy of the soul that says, ah, so it comes out in a hatred where really the Rambam is teaching us and in many places, those people, the way that we cleave to Hashem is by honoring those people, by supporting those people, by cleaving to the Ruchnias that they bring into the world, the spirituality and fighting our nature, which is natural. It doesn't matter how religious you are or not. Fighting our nature to not look down upon disparage, you know, go get a job, buddy. Why do I have, you know, I always think like we Jews always supported our scholars and our teachers. I mean, the Kohanim and the Levium were the scholars and the teachers of the Jewish people. And, you know, it's in the mitzvahs of the Torah that we have to tithe, that we have to give them, that we have to support them. So there was always this idea of they being the elite of the Jewish people. We need those who can learn Torah, teach Torah. It's a trickle down, right? And so we have to watch ourselves. And I, I, I'm just, you know, putting that out there because I'm talking to myself too. And it's very interesting how we do it, but it's the voice of our body. It's the flesh that's saying, you know, I'm not happy with the way you are materially. You have to, you know, but what we're really unhappy with is that they're kind of representing for us how the material is just the flesh, but the spiritual goes much deeper to that indestructible bone, which is totally connected to the lofty worlds that we all, we all hope to access at the end of our lives and even in our lives, right? To the degree that we can. Okay, so we're gonna end with Bechol Nafshecha, sorry, Bechol Levavcha. One other idea just before we go, uh, Rav Schwab says that Bechol Levavcha means that, oh, I just wanna end with this actually. The love for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he says, um, is described by the Rambam as a love that is even greater than the love that a man has for a woman. If a man is in love with a woman, he can't think of anything else, no matter what he does. She's always on his mind. This is so because he knows that she's personally interested in him as an individual. 
So the idea here, and I think I didn't really talk about it, is loving Hashem means being God obsessed. It means like as if you had a, remember your crush that you had? I don't know. I had a crush on a guy for three years from grade four to six, four to seven. I mean, I don't think he even looked at me. I don't think he said hello. I don't, I, maybe he put my head in the water fountain once. I mean, I went to public school in case you didn't know. And, you know, but it was like obsessive. It was like, you know, thinking and wondering, is he, think, does he, ever, does, you know, this is the kind of obsession a Jew is supposed to have for God. It's like, I have this mad crush, you know? Is Hashem going to like what I'm doing? Is he not going to like what I'm doing? Is this going to bring me closer to Hashem? Is, is this mean he's going to pay more attention to me? You know, is he going to love me more by doing this? Is he going to love me less by doing this? It's this constant obsession. Together with, you know, we have so many opportunities to make a bracha all day long to connect ourselves with this obsession, Right? whether it's the food we eat, coming out of the bathroom, seeing a beautiful sight, you know, hearing thunder, seeing lightning. There's so many ways in our day that we can be constantly connecting to this crush, you know, that we know cares about us too and is thinking of us too. So that makes it even better. And okay, so... That's love. Love is always connected to Avram Havinu, who represents Ahava Chesed. And next week, God willing, we'll talk about Bechol Shecha, what it means to love Hashem with your soul, with your very life, with the giving up of your life. If that is the case that's in front of you, which so many Jews did. And God willing... May you all have a beautiful week and thank you for listening. And if anybody has any questions, I will stop the recording and unmute.